But if you start changing your narrative, the suffering could change because you're no longer willing to confirm, I'm willing to be in the suffering I haven't healed yet. Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Monica Zanz. She is an expert relationship and business coach. We get into all things, how to have a good relationship and how to heal yourself to attract the things you want. You're going to love it. Please like and subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Monica. Yes. Welcome on the show. Thank you so much, Lucas. Glad to be here. So I want to get straight into relationships. And what are the, some of the common pitfalls you see people navigating nowadays? What are the common themes of struggling relationships that you most see in your work? Good question and huge question because there's so many yeah, yeah. pitfalls. I think a big one is listening. Okay. I think couples think they know what's right and what's wrong or think they're equipped or think I've gotten over that breakup or I've gotten over this thing. And so I know what I'm looking for now and I've gotten to know myself a little bit better, especially in a world where there's a lot of introspection. And if you're in the personal development world, which I know you are, mm-hmm. and people don't listen. They mm-hmm. don't listen to their partner. They don't ask great questions. They don't listen to what their intuition or gut is telling them and they kind of dive into things and then backpedal. So I think listening is a really big pitfall. What does good listening look like in a relationship? Um, could, like paint a picture. So it would be reflection. Uh-huh. So when you ask me a question, instead of assuming that I understand what you mean by the question that you've asked, I say, so what I'm hearing you say is this. Yeah. And when I'm reflecting, I'm not interpreting your answer or making an assumption. I'm actually getting clear that you're heard So you feel validated in that moment. And I'm clarifying, am I getting the message you're trying to send me so that I'm not feeling like I'm assuming you know, and then when you don't know, and it's stupid and simple stuff. Like if you say, I'm going to go to the grocery store, do you need anything? And I say, yeah, can you grab some milk and bread? And you go to the grocery store and you grab whatever milk and whatever bread and you come home and it's not the right milk and bread. What tends to happen? A fight. Why don't you ever do the right thing? I've been getting the same bread and milk forever. And it turns into something. But what if you say, hey, uh, can I have milk and bread? And you say, which bread, which milk? Is there a specific brand or can I grab whatever? And the minute that happens, all of a sudden, now there's an experience of you heard me, I heard you were good. Why do you think we avoid that clear communication? Because it happens so much, right? Like I've experienced in the past where, you know, a partner will be sitting there whining and sulky and you're like, "What, what the fuck's going on? And they want to tell you. So I'm curious to think, why, why do you think we're so avoidant to revealing? Is it just vulnerability? And I think we get burned. Okay. I think along the way, we get burned as little ones. And so we don't feel safe in certain situations. So we wear some sort of a mask or we create protection. And then we share only what we think won't burn us again. Yep. And then we get burned by that. And then we share only, we edit again. And then we edit again. And by the time we get into our third, fourth, fifth relationship, we're so edited, we don't actually know the truth anymore. We lose sight of the truth. Yeah. How do we undo that damage through relationship? Well, I mean, first of all, you need to be willing to see it. Awareness, number one. Yeah. If you don't see it, you can't shift it at all. And the big way to see it is if you're getting triggered a lot, if you're feeling anxious a lot, if you're feeling like I don't trust the situation a lot and you feel like I want to protect, I'm crossing my eyes, I'm rolling my eyes, I'm, I'm doing that kind of energy that's probably a pretty big sign that there's something going on that's not just happening right now. Yeah. And what I like to say is, if you trigger me right now, 
It's not the first time someone's ever done that to me. It can't be because I'm already an adult and I've been through hundreds and thousands of experiences. It's probably when I was a teen and then when I was an adolescent and then when I was a child. So part of it is going back in time and talking to that younger self and saying, I love you, man. Mm -hmm. I'm here for you. Hey, I know your mom never told you this. Hey, I know your dad never told you this, but I want you to know how much I love you. Yeah. So that that little one inside feels like, oh, I'm here. I'm good. I'm okay. And then once they're okay and you've done that enough times, people also think, let me go to a weekend seminar. Let me do it one time and I'm good. No, no, no. This is like a daily practice. This is a weekly practice to build up that experience inside. Yeah. So I've been through some capital T trauma stuff in my life and still nothing cuts as deep or comes as frequently as um, romantic wounds. Mm. I think they just cut so deep for so many people. Because you see people handling like, you know, a violent event or getting robbed or something, but they're still experiencing the same trigger and trigger over and over again in a relationship, whether it's uh, anxious attachment or something. That It's amazing hearing, hearing you say this stuff because it just cuts so deep for so many people. Well, I think that relationships are the fabric of society. Yeah. And we don't realize and give it as much importance, value, and weight as we get to. You know, I love what you're sharing. Heartbreak isn't just heartbreak and romantic. Heartbreak when my dad yelled at me when I was little. Heartbreak when my sister didn't understand something that I so desperately wanted her to understand. Heartbreak when my friend misinterpreted when I was sharing on their behalf and now all of a sudden that misinterpretation turned into a judgment. Like relationships are everything. You have a relationship to your body, relationship to your health, relationship to stress, relationship to your upbringing, relationship to the future and the outcomes that you want. We have relationships to everything. And so when certain relationships are on shaky ground, we don't realize that we need to heal our relationship to things. And so then we carry the broken parts inside and then we get into a relationship and we fight about things because we're different. We had a different upbringing. We see it differently. And instead of leaning in and saying, hey, Lucas, what's important to you about that? Why do you feel that way? It's so different than how I feel. Why do you feel that way? I don't understand. You know, every time you share that story with me, I feel inadequate. Are you aware that what you're doing is causing me over here to feel inadequate? It's like discovery and checking in. And people make assumptions. They're like, don't talk to me that way. Don't treat me that way. And you're like, wait, hold up. I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And what all you're doing is reminding them of something else. Yeah, for sure. What I've noticed is that your ability to be communicative and open to someone else in relationship is reflective of the degree you can deal with yourself, right? Like how much you're open with yourself, how much you can listen to the sides of yourself that, as you said, it kind of starts with, the, with awareness. So when you're doing work with people, is that a common first step? Like you telling them, how are you facing yourself? How are you communicating with yourself in that way? Yeah, it's perception. Mm-hmm. What do you think you are in the world? What do you think you are hiding? Why do you think you have the outcomes that you have? Why do you think you're upset about the reasons that you aren't certain places? What is the core of all of that? Before I do any work with people, I'm trying to just dig and uncover mm-hmm. and dig and uncover because what I'm hoping that they start seeing is It's not about the outcome that they want. That'll come no matter what. They'll always get to the outcome. But the length of time and the experience they have getting to it, the journey to the outcome that they want, is totally dependent on how well they know themselves, how well they're willing to be seen, and how well they're willing to adjust, accommodate, deal with uncertainty, and not shy away in the face of what they don't know yet. So it's acuity, not only the awareness of who you are on the inside, 
but how do I develop a relationship with parts of me that I don't know yet? So I don't have the roadmap. Yeah. And we're like, no, I don't have a roadmap. Let me try all the things I've always done. Yeah. Well, you said something there, which made me curious. What makes you think we always get the outcome? Because whatever we set our mind to, Mm -hmm. there's some version of that outcome that's intended for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have the thought that we wanted as an outcome. So what does that look like in an example? If we could like yeah. in and out. So let's just say that I want to make a certain amount of money. Okay. Where did the amount of money come from? I made it up. So there's a journey that I'm going to take to making a certain amount okay. of money. May not be all the money that I want. It may not be in the timeline that I want. But I'm going to make a certain amount of money because I have a focus on, on money as part of the thing that's driving me towards it. Now, what I may have to learn is what's my relationship to money? What's my money story? How is it impacting me? And that's a roadblock that I get to then unpack, uncover. And when I learn that and that domino goes down, guess what else gets healed? My relationship to the other stories where I feel limitation. Yeah. What? Why does that play such a huge role? Because I, I agree with you. Right? I'm, I'm very big on law of attraction and energy, all kind of stuff. But I always try and convince the skeptics out there who may, who may be listening on the energy stuff. So on like a, a practical element, because I'm actually curious about this. Let's use money, for example. Okay. Why does someone's unworthiness or insecurity around money or, or victimhood around money, why do those things end up actually affecting their ability to draw it in energetically? So great question. My experience of it is the protection doesn't just keep you in. It also keeps good out. Okay. So if I want something, but I don't feel worthy, the unworthiness protection wall goes up. Mm. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve these things. So when that wall is up, when money is trying to come, which it always is, it's always trying to come. But if we're not willing and ready or able to receive, then the money will bounce off of the protection that we have and go wherever it goes next. Yeah. And it still comes. And when we have moments where we let it down and we understand that we're worthy or we learn how to receive a little differently, we may let it down for an amount of time. And then all of a sudden it comes to us and we have hope again. And then something happens and the wall goes up again. And the more things that happen that trip us, the the thicker the wall gets. So it's not just a protective wall now. Now it's a thick protective wall. And the thicker the wall, the more the work that's required to get all the layers that are there down, which means we need to add talk to the different aspects that get formed based on the traumatic experiences that formed them. How do we learn to receive? How do we break that that barrier and and feel worthy of the energy, whether it's money or love or attraction? Some of it's simple, some of it's complex. The simple is thank you. Allowing what something is being given to you, a compliment, money, an opportunity, a job, thank you. Thank you to the person that gave it to you, or thank you energy, or thank you God, or thank you universe, or thank you nature, or thank you, thank you. Because when we're in a space of thanks and gratitude, a heart opens. And the key to reception is having an open heart, not having the need to protect from or have that wall. So the first thing is, is start looking at how often are you actually being grateful, being open-hearted, and what does it feel like to be open-hearted? Part of it is somatic. It's opening your posture. It's allowing your arms to fall down. It's when you're in a conversation, not having your hands together and down and closed, Mm -hmm. having your hands open because then you're in the conversation and it doesn't have to look weird. If you and I are talking and my hands are open, you're not going to think it's weird if I'm using my hands and being open, but you'll notice that I tend to sit with my hands open rather than 
my hands down because what am I closing myself from? So it's an energetic exchange. That's where it gets a little more complex is there's like physical and somatic things you can do that are simple and practicable. And then there's complex, the energy with which you interact with people. When I hear the voices in my head tell me negative things and critical things, you know, you may ask me a question and I may think, oh my gosh, I'm so dumb. I don't have the answer to that. Let me come up with something really quick. And that conversation, if I'm not aware of, oh, honey, it's okay. You're not dumb. I get that you were tripped up. Just be with it. Breathe for a moment. Get into your space. Get clear about what you do know. Move into what you know. If I don't give myself tools and places where I can reflect on what the voices in my head are saying, then my energy can itself be a blocker of reception. So the more I can be attuned, like we talked about earlier, on the inside of how I'm treating myself and working with that part of me to know, how can I be more receptive? How can I be more relatable? How can I build better rapport? Then all of a sudden I'm creating that affinity within that becomes magnetic and attractive. How did you come to all these beautiful realizations? (laughs) Was it like, it's always interesting asking this question to people who are very aware was it like one big beatdown? Was it one significant event? Or was it just gradual footsteps over time? How was the journey for you getting here to all your beautiful wisdom? Good question. So I have a podcast called Wake Up. Okay. And in that, I ask people, what's their wake up moment? Mm-hmm. So I think everybody in life may or may not remember, but there is like a catalyst in their life. And then there's a bunch of auxiliary things that happen. So in 2002, I was hit by a truck in a crosswalk. And I shouldn't have made it. I should have gone through the axle or through the windshield. And the velocity of the car, and I never saw it coming, pushed me away from it rather than pulled me into it. Like I never tensed up, so I didn't go under, I went out. And thank God, because as a result of that accident, it stopped me in my tracks of what am I really here for? Who am I here to serve? What am I here to serve? What am I here to learn? And instead of being a pursuer, like this is what I'm here to go do. I'm going to go get that and go after it, which was many years of my life. It all of a sudden became, please show me and let me respond. And please show me. And how can I get better at listening? And how can I get slower? How can I get more thoughtful? And how can I get more compassionate? And so I do think for me, it was a very big catalyzing event. But I also know that when I was a little girl from the age of four on, which is kind of where my memories began, I know that I was put on this planet to serve and help people heal things. When I was young, I thought I was going to be a doctor. I studied to be a doctor. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And then a left turn happened in my life, and I changed completely what Mm -hmm. I was doing. But as a result of what I experienced, I was conditioned to look for, oh, you have pain? It was like a beacon for me. Oh, you have pain? How can I support? For a long time, I thought telling you how to do it better, because that's what my father did with me, would help support you. Advice giving, very bad, especially in the coaching world. Don't give advice, not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Who do you know and how do you know better than someone else? But what I learned was that I have this affinity to support people. So that, along with the accident, really had me reflect on my life so differently. In in that moment when you got hit by the truck, were you... Did you, go, did you go somewhere? What yes. was your, I want to hear about that. What was that experience yeah. like? So I got hit by the truck and I got instantly kicked out of my body. I never saw it coming. And when it hit me, I went up. So it hit like my hip and my shoulder and I went up. And from up above, I witnessed the whole scene of events that began to happen. The truck wanting to drive away, a guy on a bike stopping the truck, 
classmates that I was in a class for pulling me over to the side and the ambulance coming. And during that time, both I went up and watched the whole scene, but also I went into the tunnel. And in that moment, I didn't actually want to stay. I -hmm. actually wanted to go. Life had felt very hard for me, very challenged. It felt very much like I was misunderstood and out of place in many relationships on this planet. And so the experience that I wanted was just free. And when you're in that space, the experience for me was bliss. It's like out of out of body, out of pain, out of suffering, total immersion of light and spirit. And in that moment, I heard a voice. I called the voice God. I heard a voice and it asked, what do you want? And the first couple of times it asked the same question over and over. And my answer was to go. And then it said, what do you want? And I was like, I must be giving the voice the wrong answer. And so I said, the only reason I would want to go back to earth is if I could be a mother. And then the next voice, the next question was, are you sure? And I said again, three times, yes, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. And then all of a sudden I was back in the ambulance Mm -hmm. in my body, looking out of my own eyes at the people not talking because I had oxygen, but hearing them talk about me in that moment. And I believe that it it took many months. I was in bed for four months healing. It took many months to realize, almost a year, to realize the reason I was asked those questions is not, are you sure you want to be a mother? Because I didn't say I want to have my own children. I said I want to be a mother. What I believe is that the universe was testing me to say, Are you ready to actually show up as a mother figure, a nourisher and a nurturer on this planet in the work that we're going to ask you to do? Mm -hmm. And do you believe that what our direction for you is, is bigger than the direction you were going to have? Yeah. Wow. One of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. Do you ever, I always think about people who have been through that because I believe in my heart that after this, I don't know if it's heaven or what, but I just know from intuitive feelings or experiences that it's just like going back home in some way. It's like a liberating Lightful, light-filled, beautiful experience. Why well, I ask that is that is it was it harder? Is it ever hard? Haven't actually felt that and been there, dealing with suffering in the, in the human experience every day. Okay, How's every day, Lucas. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd use the word hard every day, but I'd use the word noticeable every day. There is a level of suffering, and my mission, and my husband, and my mission on this planet is to eradicate self-inflicted suffering. Because most people suffer every day about something. Now there's actual suffering, like I hurt myself, I skinned my knee, I got in an accident, I hurt my head, I have a headache. There's actual suffering, like pain. And then there's self-inflicted suffering, like the voices in our head and the things we tell ourselves or the objectives we have or the competitive nature that we have or the go-get-it that we have, but what's driving underneath the go-get-it. And I think a lot of my life I felt so misinterpreted. My father always said that, you're nothing if you're not something. And my father said, you can't rely on anybody, so you have to do it yourself. Well, those two things, hand in hand, although he meant for me to be self-reliant and, and forceful and a power to be reckoned with, how I heard it as a young girl was, you can't count on anybody, and you have to do it alone, and you're the only thing that can get anywhere. Well, when you try to do life from that mentality, there's a lot of suffering. Yeah. Because if I'm right, others are wrong. If I'm better, then others are not. If I'm not good enough, then I feel I'm comparing myself all the time. 
And people would misinterpret. I'm not competitive against you. I don't, I don't even have space to be against you. I'm so competitive against the vision that my father cast for me that all I know is to be competitive. And it's a very lonely road. Mm-hmm. So I think that the opportunity is, and, and I had a very close friend that said to me, Monica, you've got to fall in love with being human. You have to fall in love with being human because you are. That's one of the states that you're in. And so I've spent a lifetime falling in love with the aspects of what humanity and humanness provide. The ability to touch you, hug you when I walk in the door, say thank you to you, see the sparkle in your eyes when some light bulb goes off from something that I say or some energy that we share in this moment. Like those are the precious moments of humanity, this container that we get to share through. Yeah. With, With that perspective, why do you, since the other side of this is so suffering, free and beautiful. Why do you think it's part of this experience to be in so much suffering? Do you think most of it is just like self-inflicted or is there, do you ever think of a larger purpose or some kind of meaning behind it as to why we have to suffer here? That's a good question. Um, I definitely think a lot is self-inflicted, but I do think that there's a societal suffering and the misunderstanding is through suffering comes result. I believe that many people have the misunderstanding that it drives them and motivates them to get done what they're here to do. Hmm. And what if it didn't have to come from that impetus? What if that wasn't the plug or the charge? What if the charge could be love? And for me, every day of my life, that's my desired outcome. Can I love someone who feels so much hate inside of themselves just a little bit so that they have a glimpse of what it could look like if they chose in? Yeah. Could I love myself just a little bit more? Can I love my children just a little bit more? Could I remind someone when they think all hope is lost and they're unlovable, what is something that they love and could they then turn that in on themselves? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's useful for, for you. How did you get from a space of using that suffering or discipline way of existing? Because I'm the same way. My dad was the same way with me, like very much... It wasn't vocal, but it was impl- implied like he only loved himself if he was perfect or if he was successful or making money or being a, a killer. So he didn't express that to me, but just observing him and how he showed me love, I ended up internalizing that. So now I'm on that journey now trying to shift that internal motivator. So how did you do it? How did you shift that internal motivator of needing that voice to perform to moving towards love and, and, and mission? Great question. So I think that my experience of hating being human after the accident, working on finding the balance between being human and appreciating the humanity of it all and the gifts that humanity was and changing the lens of I need to be a killer, which is a lot of what I was raised with, to I need to be a lover. That love is actually the thing that sources all creation and that through love, is acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, joy, empathy, truth, trust, all the things that I was longing for. And so then I just did spiritual, mental, and personal calisthenics, energetic calisthenics. Like I went to my gym of spirituality every single day and said, I'm going to do as many push-ups in compassion as I possibly can. I'm going to lift as much weight of truth and trust as I can. I'm going to read every book that I can. I'm going to learn from some of the greats. I'm going to look at the people that were killers and haters and so that I see the juxtaposition of what it looks like when pain turns bad. Mm -hmm. 
Because at the source of all people, I don't believe there's ever been a baby. I really don't believe that a baby was born evil. I believe a baby feels energetic. Maybe from a previous lifetime, they come in with a vendetta, a revenge, and then it gets awakened. But I do think that it has to get awakened, kind of like an allergy. Yeah. You're not born with the T-cells turned on, but you're born with the potential of your T-cells to turn on. I believe that our hate and our evil is like a T-cell. It can be turned on based on environmental influence. Yeah, for sure. And you think the way to turn it off is to go to the spiritual gym, to just kind of rewire yourself to... I think if you're a hateful person, if you're a victim or if you're an angry person, if you just boil it down the mechanism, if you engineer it, you just practice feeling those emotions over and over again, mm -hmm. right? And it's unconscious. You have no idea well, over it. And you build a serial pathway in your neurology. So the brain works in serial pathways. Okay. So if I have a thought that goes from point A to point B over and over and over and over, my growth mindset becomes a fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. But if I say I drive a different direction every time I go to the grocery store, what I'm doing is training my brain to be flexible. The moment we have neuroplasticity, flexibility in our brain, then the brain is highly suggestible. Mm -hmm. So people that have had those horrible thoughts over and over and over, they lose suggestibility in their brain, and now it's just a knee-jerk habit. Yeah. It's not because they're evil, it's because their brain doesn't know how to do any other pattern. Yeah. How do we cultivate that flexibility when facing a trigger? Because it's easy, you know, if I'm going on a walk, you know, I'll take a new road today or I'll put on a new song, but how, what, I think what I struggle with and what most people struggle with is changing the pathway or the way of thinking when facing the fire. So how's that process look I like? think part of it is that you need stop gaps. You need people in your life, situations in your life. You need things that are like the drums or the cymbals or the things that break you out of state because you have to have a pattern interrupt in your brain literally, mm -hmm. even if it's EMDR or therapy or somatic or getting in your body or screaming or yelling or kicking or punching or doing something. You know, I tell some of my clients, go to the gym, go to the box, go, when you get angry, go run, go sprint, go slam something, go get plates that you can crash on the ground. Like there has to be something that feeds the brain to move into a distracted state so that you could potentially even have space to suggest. Yeah. And when you're in the trigger, what we call that is we have a principle of the four realms, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. When you're in the emotional realm, there is nothing that can change the brain's mind because you're not in the brain fully. You're in the heart. And there's a disconnect in the throat. I, I say that the throat's the bridge between the mind and the heart. You have to use the voice to be able to connect the two and say, and get the emotions out so that then you can move into a different level of your processing but what happens neurologically is you go from base stem to frontal cortex, miss the limbic brain, yeah. and you, you, you respond. And you can't get out of the response once you're in it. Yeah. So in trigger, you can't. Yeah, my, my stupid brain always thinks it could think itself out of that shit. I'm like, I'm always sitting there for like 10 minutes trying to like out IQ my, my emotions being like sitting there trying to think of a solution. And what ends up happening is it gets, gets worse and worse and worse. So what you're saying is yeah, in that moment, just to feel, <laughs> fully become an, an emotional being and just express yeah. whatever is occurring yeah. in the body. And begin to train yourself to really let it out. Like we called it in my master's program, the boom, boom room, mm -hmm. like a room that's carpeted, that has soft edges that you can throw pillows. You can hit. We used to have gloves and a tennis racket and a pillow. And we used to put them on and, and get it out and scream yeah. and yell and get it out. Like 
Somatic healing is real. Breathwork, real. Tai Chi and, you know, some people need to move it through slowly. Some people need to move it through aggressively. The adrenaline, the testosterone that comes up, it needs somewhere to go. Yeah. And if you overthink it, it's still inside swirling in your body like the Tasmanian devil. What do you think's going to happen? You're going to yeah. keep trigger, 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 and it's going to then trigger a, multi- a multitude of other thoughts. Yeah. I, I, have, I, I have a client ahead, yeah. that is, um, he's dealing with a lot of fear, mm-hmm. fear, fear, fear. And so what I did the other day with him is I said, I want you to imagine that you have a voice of a princess inside of you. This is a grown person. And I'm like, imagine you have a princess inside of you. And I want you to only talk in that voice about all the pain that you're going through. Just talk in that voice. And it's hard to do that when you're kind of being goofy, silly. So that was a way that I gave a suggestion. He took it and then he went in a different pathway and his brain opened up. It took a couple of hours after we did that exercise for it to open up, but it was able to take the suggestion. Yeah, for sure. I was. I came ac- across the realization the other day that um, I always kind of felt bogged down, like great cloud throughout my life, just like heavy. And I have a tendency to get super serious and take life seriously. It's one of my shadows. And, yeah. and I, I read, read this book that kind of made the point that a man remains ill until he consults the fool within, in a way. Yeah. I think men especially can be so fucking serious. I'm, I'm relating it back to this point because I think why, in my experience as a man or, or traditional like alpha men don't do this, is that there's like a a prize on stoicism. It's like celebrated in a way, like just to your failure if you let your emotions get the best of you, if you take time to, to, to yell or scream. And it's like that seriousness that, that cockiness that takes over, and I realize once I kind of consult, I call it the the, the fool, but the princess is a party that's like making fun of the situation or treating it playfully and grabbing a pill and throwing it, like just completely changes your whole reality. Because yeah. for me, what causes the most suffering is that land of like seriousness and having to be a certain way and a certain kind of man, and consulting that voice does make a difference. So play around with that, listeners, and just making a goofy, playful voice or a princess voice to observe a new reality within you. Or ask like, does it? Do you smell the smell of popcorn? Why does that work? Because the minute that I say that, do you think about popcorn? Yeah. Yeah. Or don't pay attention to the elephant in the room. The minute I say don't, what do you do? You think about there's not an elephant in the room or there is an elephant in the room or what's the elephant that she's talking about in the room? It's like if if I can pull you out of what you're just doing enough times where your brain gives up its dominion over its control on you. I always say... The brain is the train. Mm -hmm. We are the conductor. The heart's the conductor. And if you let the train take off, it's going to crash into things and not stop at the stops it needs to because the brain just goes. It's the vehicle. But something's directing that. And if you forget that you're directing it, it will direct you until it knows what direction you're giving it. So don't let it get off the tracks. Don't let it be the train. Don't let it be without a driver. Drive it. Mm-hmm. different from controlling it drive it get clear what you want get clear about the outcome you're hoping for get unattached that that has to be it or that there's one way to get to it go on multiple stops along the way learn new things yeah. ask new questions find new mem- mentors don't do it your way ask someone else how they do it and try it their way like there's all these just different ways to create suggestibility in the brain yeah for sure i think a key point you're talking about there is losing a sense of control and having faith in whatever it is and some higher, you know, that something higher than you is, is working for you, for your highest benefit. That's what I struggle with the most is that if I think I have an ounce of control over it, 
that I can somehow willpower my way through it, yeah. I suffer more. But it's actually easier for me if something terrible happens in my life, like someone dies, sounds crazy, or, or someone gets hurt that I have no control over. It's much easier for me to move through the emotions. But when I feel like I have, I can do something about it, yeah. my brain thinks about it, I can't let it go. It's like this, this like horrible sense of control. So what's your your take on that? on that part of humanity and how we can get into a place of losing control, uh, being okay with losing control, having faith of the higher mission in a way. Well, what I'm hearing you talk about is something I call the Superman syndrome. And it's like we can Superman our way through anything or Superwoman our way through anything. And it's like, I'm, I'm made of steel. And at the end of the day, every superhero has their kryptonite, you know? And so the opportunity is, what is your kryptonite? And how does it stop you? And why does it stop you? Because if you know what your kryptonite is, maybe when you're thinking so controlling thoughts, maybe you can introduce and play with and practice bringing a little bit of your kryptonite in so that it humbles you, that it checks you, so that it slows you down, so that it has you start looking at different things. Because we get on the mission of the desire for control because our nature is survive. Mm -hmm. Our ego is born out of the desire to survive. So when the ego comes into play, your ego is the thing that's running the program. Like, oh, forget about this, Lucas. Here, think this, think this, think this. Because the ego thinks, ah, I've got your attention now and I'm going to save you. Save us. And what we really want to know is, first of all, I don't need to be saved. I'm okay. How How do I get there? How do I slow myself down? Or how do I do what I need to do to be able to recognize I'm okay? And... Control itself isn't bad when it has an objective. I don't mind if someone wants to be controlling about something that they want to create an outcome in. It's when they let control be the guiding force and they don't have checks and balances, a relationship with control. Yeah. Getting back to relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. It's it's a thing I struggle with. My kryptonite is not feeling like I'm lovable. In a way, that's my kryptonite. And then I'll get into the habit of like mentally using my logic to try and control situations to prove that point. Even if it's not really there, I'll just start thinking of ways to make it happen. I'm stuck in this loop of just fighting something that I, that's it's a losing game. Cause I can't, you know, nothing on the outside can give me that feeling. And I know that it's like this losing game. I'm playing with myself and this, and this habit. And then that shows up in, in relationships. So how common is that, that kryptonite you'd say, like not feeling lovable enough. It's really common. Yeah. Especially that one. <laughs> I mean, probably the number one. Yeah. And people uncover, I'm unlovable with, I'm unworthy, I don't matter, I don't deserve, I'm not enough. And so now they have two. And so they think like, okay, I've handled my worthiness. And then unlovable comes forward. Um, Would you consider something different? Sure. So multiple times today you've said, that's what I struggle with. That's what Mm -hmm. I struggle with. That's what I'm struggling with. That's what I struggle with. If you erased that word from your vocabulary entirely, and you played a game for a week, and you said, I cannot use the word, I'm struggling. What would be a different word? I'm getting over, I'm practicing, I'm witnessing. Great. Or working through, through, moving through, learning from, discovering. So the the paradigm that gets created based on the words we use creates the stronghold in our brain as well. So when you ask, like, if you're in the trigger, how do you get out? Well, part of it is you've got to start catching the words you say that keep you in it indefinitely. You know, do you know, is there any part of you that knows that you're lovable? Oh, for sure, yeah. How? What do you mean? How do you know that? Well, you consult yourself in the way you hear the whispers. How do you know that you're lovable in some way? 
feel it. Feel your heart. Okay, why are you saying you? I feel it. <laughs> so there's some dis- disassociation for you. Yeah. That's just your knee jerk because I'm just yeah, asking yeah, you quick on the fly quick. questions yeah. and I'm just witnessing yeah. in the moment. Yeah. And so in those moments, we don't realize how conditioned we are to prove how right I'm unlovable is. Yeah. But if you start changing your narrative, the suffering could change because you're no longer willing to confirm I'm willing to be in the suffering I haven't healed yet. Yeah. You know, a breakup is a breakup. There is truth in my heart hurts. I need to move through something. It doesn't feel good right now. I don't know what to think. I'm in the swirl. And are you suffering or are you healing? Yeah. If you're suffering, you're going to attract all the millions of times in your life you've suffered because the brain is looking for evidence of suffering. Yeah. What you say is what you'll see. But if you say, I'm healing, what will you see different? Yeah. How will you hear differently in your mind? For sure. One thing I, I often do notice or witness or see in myself and others is this fine dance or fine line between when is actually feeling the sensation healing and being with it or when is it a habit of mm. a victimization or like what, what's that line? That's so good. <laughs> That's so good. I'm going to give you a break to digest all this amazing information. And in this break, please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you. So, I'm going to say an answer, and it probably will change. Okay. But I'm going to say it for now. I believe that in this moment, the line is... A limiting belief. It changes when you stop confirming the evidence that the way that it is is the way that will serve you to get out of it. Remember when we talked about it's a suffering is the motivation and the drive? Mm-hmm. So when you no longer feel like I'm gonna get somewhere if I suffer, if you no longer feel that way, then what mm-hmm. would be the replaced motivation? Okay, if I heal and I don't want my healing to become rote and I don't want my healing to become conditional again and become just like suffering but on the other side of it, then what does it feel like on the other side of healing? What does it feel like for me to be lovable? How do I pay that forward? How do I share in that collaborative experience with another? And it goes back to relationship. When you relate to someone going through something and your healing serves their healing, then your healing isn't the fine line of, well, I'm just in this incessant loop of healing. I don't heal to heal me. I heal so that I'm a vessel of opportunity, mentorship, and modeling for another. That's my positionality in life. I don't learn for Monica. I learn because Monica's gonna meet Lucas and hopefully something that I learned is gonna serve you. And I come from every angle of my life and relationships. How am I serving? How am I serving? My accident did that. Mm-hmm. My experience of the God that came to me and said, Monica, this is what you are here on this planet to do. It's like you could never convince me out of it. Yeah. It's so clear that it is, it is purpose, calling, and intention. I'm here to just be a space of love. Mm-hmm. It's the... that. 
way of viewing or interacting reality is the most powerful perspective I've taken on in my life, which is when you're facing a struggle, when you're facing a trigger, when you're facing a certain point of trauma, when you remove the I and you say, how can this help the we in a way? How can yes. me overcoming this help so many people? You kind of remove yourself and it, and it, it really helps. It's helped me a lot in many ways, just taking on that perspective. Because it's tough to see if you're not actually helping people. But when I've, I've seen it happen, right? When I talk to someone or I'm writing something and it just comes up and this is why. And, you know, in the moment, it's tough to see that all, all your emotions don't agree with it. All the, the sucky feelings don't want to match that intellectual perspective. But it's paramount. Yeah, well, and it's practice. You go to the spiritual gym yeah. and you do it again. And you get up the next day and you see the thoughts and you do it again. But every time you have a little bit more vantage point, you become even better at being the observer of your life. I have a lot of people sit in the movie theater of their life and play their tight tapes forward and back, forward and back, because I want to desensitize them from the trauma that playing it just forward plays. Mm -hmm. Go backwards again. What about right before you got upset? What did that feel like? Do you remember that? Go back and see it. Remember that. Now play it forward. Now go back. Remember that. How did it feel? Elevate that feeling. How did it feel? Excellent. Play it forward. And the more you desensitize the trauma response, the more you can suggest to the brain, now is there a different response you could possibly have had? Yeah. And then there's healing. For sure. Is there something right now or with you that's still, not kryptonite, but like a piece of you that's hard to, like what's the trigger you struggle with mostly or something that you've been facing a lot that's a challenge for you? Not a challenge, but is, is inviting for you. Uh, two. One is stability. I have, from a very young age, a misunderstanding in my family of origin that it's never enough. I'm not working enough. I haven't, uh, I haven't done enough. I haven't impacted enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. I have to do more. Same here. Yeah. And so my experience is sometimes I can silent that voice and I can just be in so much gratitude for what I have done and the lives I've touched. And it feels sometimes out of integrity because I'll say to someone, you only have to touch one life to have done your work here. And yet here I am over here struggling with, I've touched thousands and it's not enough. Um, so that's one big kryptonite that I'm always moving through. And I get really sensitive if I've impacted someone in a negative way. I misinterpret that I'm supposed to have impacted everybody always in a positive way. And it's like, I'm not supposed to be everything for everyone. Yeah. So I work through that. And then the other thing is the experience of there's a plan and there's not a timeline for that plan. You know, as I'm getting wiser and older in my life and my children are growing up and they're moving out of the house and I'm seeing close friends having babies and I'm going through all these different life cycles, it's I'm, I'm working through timeline because I do so much work on the ethers. I go up out of timeline and I do dimension travel and I do visioning and I do a lot of things in my sleep state and in my unconscious state and I, I, I leave a lot. And so when I come back into my human experience, once again, there's this timeline thing that I bump up against. And sometimes it has me feel a lot of scarcity and lack. Yeah. And it doesn't feel freeing and abundant and, you know, manifesting. It feels... Yeah. Limiting. What's the timeline difference you encounter when you leave here? There is no time. Okay. What does that really mean? It feels to me, it means that I can support multiple people in multiple timelines across multiple dimensions. And all of that work doesn't require effort. 
it's just with intent yeah. and with, um, you know, sacred geometry. It's with light codes. It w it's with uh, knowing. It's with truth. It's with love. It's with purpose. It's with intent. It's with trust. It's with compassion. It's love. Yeah. And when I'm in my physical reality, my humanity challenges the way I yeah. see through my human eyes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't leave as much as you, but I did a... So my, my mom passed away last year, and in that, I uh, I did like a super intense breathwork session where I accessed DMT to, to go meet with her. Mm. And then... What and she, did you? Yeah, I met, I met up with her. We're, we're, we're chilling. And uh, she, she showed me this like timeline of my life. It was like a... Cut up film. It was like all these different timelines in my whole life, and she showed me like my success eventually. I was like, okay, so what I'm doing? I'm actually doing what I'm doing. And she's like, yeah, like I'm so proud of you. All this shit. I saw like all this crazy success, and, and then suddenly I was put back into reality in my current experience now, where none of that is existing. And it's like fuck. It, it's just this daily struggle I face. I've seen. It. I've literally seen it with my eyes. What my life will be like, yeah. and my I really struggle with the human side of it, yeah. being like fuck. It's not here yet. The impatience, yeah. and because it is here. As you said, it, it's there, it's here, but it's not here. So well, I feel you. <laughs> I did a, my one and only um, ayahuasca journey. I went to Peru and mm -hmm. I had an experience. And in it, I was shown um, the the finite and uh, experience through the human lens of the infinite dimensions that weave and web and that we can you could see multiple lifetimes and you don't necessarily have the awareness or the memory yet of what's past lifetimes that you've already lived and what's future lifetimes that you've yet to live. Mm -hmm. So that success could be across multiple times that you've already been in existence. Yeah. And so when people go through really big things they don't feel worthy of or things they feel confronted by, I sometimes ask the question, how do you know or do you know that you haven't been through this multiple times in the past and in this lifetime, you're supposed to have all this abundance? Yeah. You know, people who have all of this abundance or they have a trust or they have really beautiful parents that have given them so many things in life and they feel like, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And it's like, how do you know that in other lifetimes you had to go and suffer and live in poverty or live in lack or live in all this stuff and you've navigated so that in this lifetime... You're exactly in the space that you're meant to be in. Yeah, sure. How do we be in the acceptance of what's so, so that it don't, we don't suffer? And I'm still learning that. I'm still in the mastery of that. Yeah, it's tough. What are some of your like go-to reminders to yourself or thoughts you have when you encounter those, those points of resistance? Well, I'll tell you the biggest gift that I have is my husband. Okay. Because I, so I, I know that my parents loved me, lo lo love, love, loved me. But my experience was, and I was also birthed from them. So there's kind of like this paradigm of, and they're supposed to. My husband didn't have to. And my husband, I put him through a lot of things in our relationship, trying to test and understand and, and learn to be okay with commitment. And I just wasn't sure. And I wasn't trying to do it to hurt him or do it to him. I was just exploring who I was and growing up and we met very young. I met him at college. So mm. I was exploring and figuring it out. And no matter what, he loved me and loved me and loved me and loved me. So what he stands for is no matter what you don't believe about you, there's someone on this planet that sees you differently than you see you. And when you can't see you that way, go ask him 
to tell you how he sees you and borrow his eyes, borrow his experience temporarily until you are willing to see it another way that serves you. Mm. So that relationship has been a real catalyst for me to feel loved and feel like as broken as I sometimes have felt. Someone loves me, so let me focus on that energy and let me be inside of their paradigm and not mine. Yeah, it's powerful. Was it hard for you to accept all that love at one point? Why? Yeah. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know how to not prove that I was worthy of it. Hmm. My father said, number one, that there was only three jobs you could ever have to be successful. You could be a pilot, you could be a, a lawyer doctor, that, that was one and the same, or you could have an MBA. I don't have any of that. I studied to be a doctor. I was going to go get my degree in medicine, but it was a man's world when I was coming up in it, and I was like, no, no, no. I want freedom. I want choice. I don't want to be governed and told. I worked in the hospital system for 10 years as an intern, and I had doctors say to me, you'll make such a good nurse someday. And I was feisty. I was like, fuck you. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. So when I didn't do those three things, my paradigm of life was I must be a failure. So then it was prove it and prove it. And what do I do and how do I? And it was survival. How do I survive this? Yeah. And to be loved by my husband, he kept saying, like, I, you don't need to be something for me to love you this way. I just love you. Yeah. I just love you. I just love you. I just love you. And when you hear that enough, I know why I couldn't believe it because I always showed my father why he should love me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a humbling experience. I had it in my past relationship, and it was confusing, right? Because it was like, I only can love myself if I'm, you know, helping a ton of people, if I'm getting all these metrics that I set up for myself, my perfectionist mind, but somehow this person in front of me doesn't care about all that. Right. They just look at me as a person and go, whatever, you could be, you know, a poor baker in the slums of India, and I'd still love you deeply. It's a it's a powerful feeling. It makes It's confusing for a bit, right, until you can get there yourself and you're like oh, okay this is actually again this helps me look at a different reality when i'm stuck in my own rigid system of perfectionism or whatever so that's a powerful yeah what do you think that got you stuck the most in what about feeling like you weren't lovable in that way for me it's like i'm a crazy not cr i'm a hyper perfectionist in many ways mm. Like, I have to, my mind sets these traps of, like, I'm only worthy of X if I reach this metric. And the metric just keeps getting higher and higher the more I go up. So it's, I know I have to get, I know the, the I tell people the egoistic mind always say, you know, once you get here, you'll, you'll finally be free in whatever ways. But, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Ha, ha. yeah I've, got, I've gotten there in many ways and it still doesn't exist. So oh. it's like, for me, I'm just trying to really get ahead of that, that trap now so I can just enjoy what, what I'm experiencing in reality in the future and thankfully i'm young and i can figure it out early but yeah what if it's not a figuring out what if it's a acceptance of what's so the ego's going to exist yeah. part of the nature of human expression and experience that i've witnessed is the ego is born to keep us alive we have a survival mentality it's nature versus nurture we're instinctually designed to survive it's part of why we as a species have really thrived so what if you're not supposed to get over it? What if you're supposed to accept that part of me needs these things? And then it's not so loud. Yeah. Then it can be, I'm, my perfectionism is really good when I'm editing. Yeah. My perfectionism is really good when I'm proofreading an email copy. 
Yeah. My perfectionism has a place. I'm fucking perfectionistic as all perfection. Yeah. But what I don't do is use it against myself anymore. Yeah. What I just struggle with is is uh, separating it, right? Like mm-hmm. what you're recommending is what I've tried my best to do is, is channeling it in, in certain things, but like it's hard for me to have that, that separation. It's something I'm I'm currently uh, practicing. healing. Yeah, practicing and healing is what having are you doing that separation. To I mean, right now, just being in, in awareness of when I'm, you know, applying that loop of thinking to facets of my life that don't need it. Mm. Um, like, for, it's for everything. It could be literally, for me, it's it's every second. It's it's a mentality of, like, if a certain thought, I, like, feeling my thoughts are wrong or just crazy stuff like that. Just yeah. everything. So I really try and, because it keeps me in the state of constant, like, like hyper-awareness. Sure. So I try, I'm just trying to slowly just let it, let it float and not attach to it too, too much and just, you know, exhaust it when I can when the moment comes I was an art major at UCLA and a biology major and one of the things that I saw was studying a whole bunch of paintings where I didn't think they were beautiful art but they were done by artists that were renowned and so they sold for multi 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 millions of dollars for most of those artists they had passed and then their art became you know exponentially more valuable because it was the only pieces and what I started looking for in art was the imperfection because I was so perfect and sought perfection in so many ways and thought I needed to be so perfect for my dad that I started spending time in my life looking for the beauty in the imperfection and seeing could I flip it on its head and see the perfect in the imperfect so that I had another paradigm of how I defined perfect in my yeah. world. And, you know, there was an artist that um, put a painting in a museum and when the guys were moving it to hang it on the wall, they dropped it and it broke and he came and saw it and they're like, oh my God, what do we need to do? And he said, now it's done. And I love that example of there was something missing for him. There was something not done. And then their interaction with it created the completion of the piece. And what if we're all unfinished pieces and we can create perfection at any time along the pathway of our experience? Yeah. That might help make it a little bit easier to palette when you're in the perfect and it's like, okay, it's as perfect as it can be right now and there's probably more and what could I find in it now? That yeah. has helped me a lot. Yeah, for sure. I noticed that in, in myself that it's like my happiness is dependent when I can feel like everything yes. is going the way I want it to. It's like it's like 40-minute windows each day where I'm like, everything I, I was it's building, so good. it's like, oh, and, then it, and then I'm stuck in suffering the rest of it. So it's... it's it's not. It's not good, and I'm really trying to trying to fix it. My brain has been so stuck in it, because yeah. it's like for me, it's like a kid in a candy store. Right for so long, in my life I had nothing go my way, zero, and now I'm finally tasting it, and I'm getting things. It's like, oh my god, this is amazing. And then when I'm left without it, my body goes back to yeah. childhood days where I had nothing that I wanted, and it was like, oh. so yeah, it's it's definitely a, a process. Yeah. <laughs> well, your mother sounds like she had really sage vision for you of here's what's here's what's coming for you don't worry here's what's coming for you and you deserve it yeah and if you need it to be because my mother says so (laughs) for a little while maybe that's yeah for sure my my brain goes what actually helps me is that we can talk about this now is that how does that perfectionism or need for control of the way things so how does it actually affect your ability to receive the thing energy of it how does that actually affect it well if i'm in the energy of perfection it's very hard for me to actually receive why because the experience for me is i'm looking past 
anything else because I'm so focused on what my perception of reality is. So it's really hard for me to be suggestible in that moment. I can't see another way. When I see that I'm operating from the perfection lens and I can say, okay, does it need to be the way that I think perfection is or is there any other way? And I open up the alternatives. Now I can have suggestion. I can understand nuances and, and, and mystery and creativity and collaboration and innovation come in. Yeah. But in, even in perfection, I believe there's an energy that is, if it's not perfect, I die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. There's some relationship to like, yeah. instinctually, I cannot survive. It's like an ego death. Too, yeah. 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 And in terms of like, for sure, I agree. And how about when it comes to like losing control? How does like this constant need of control the way things should go in our path? Or, okay, let's put it, I like putting things in practical examples so people can relate. Good. Let's say my goal is I want to make $100,000 in two months, right? Very, very crazy, uh, not crazy, but like specific way of doing it. It's not me, it's just theoretical. And you are very fixated on that timeline. You're fixated on how it should go, on the way it builds up, all those metrics. How does that affect your ability to actually get the thing? Well, I think there are certain people that have proven that they can will it. Mm-hmm. And so they train their system to be constantly on edge to activate the motivation and the driver to go after and get it. So I do think people do accomplish it, but yeah. I don't think it's from receiving. No. I think it's from action and willpower. Yeah. And I think that if you want to be in receiving, that which you go after is limited by what you can see and what you can do and what true receiving is is manifestation if i loosen my hold on how perfect it needs to be or the timeline that it needs to be maybe instead of in two months it's a hundred thousand and this is the way i'm going to go get it maybe it's a million in two months because something that i couldn't have even asked for or gone after comes into my field yeah if it's aligned for me i believe that it will i think going to that point is that you can't if you're so fixated tunnel vision on on the 100,000 yeah. and, and and being anxious and fearful about how it may not go that way you're going to miss the whispers taking you to the million in a way correct you're going to miss the whatever the signals the synchronicities to show you that you could have something else you might even forget to tell people that are in your network yeah. and in your community that are like oh my god you'd be so perfect for this thing and you generate a million yeah for sure and i'll tell you that for a lot of my life I just did what I did. I did it really well. And I rested upon that. And in my, I went and got a master's. And in my master's, they added this sentence to everything you do. This or something better for the highest good of all concerned. So everything I do, when I write an email, when I send something, when I make a dream board, when I do an ideal scene, when I do vision mapping, when I do core values, anything I say, this or something better for the highest good of all concern. Because whatever is in service, guides, spirits, angels, whatever, whatever is in service to, to the highest good of all, my limited human doesn't know all of that. Yep. So I want to make sure that I leave the channel open to elicit everything for my highest good. Yeah, I hear you. And I, I'm going to do that. I have done that. But then my brain will let me to look at the yeah. metrics. Right, like if it's like money, or if it's a amount of likes, or followers, or engagement, it's just tough. To, I agree with you completely. It's just tough to look beyond all that stuff yeah. and just trust it. Yeah. It's just this weird game we're playing in humanity right now. Well, it's. I would say, if you always remember, am I doing this to thrive or am I doing this to survive? 
your brain focused on metrics, your brain going into this spiral pattern, the serial brain, that is survival. And if you can challenge yourself each time to say, do I want to survive or do I want to thrive? Because the truth is, you're going to answer that question one way or the other. If you want to survive, you're going to keep doing what you're doing. You're already master of it. But if you want to thrive, you're going to have to ask the next question. I want to thrive. How? Why? What do you want to do now? Mm -hmm. But if you say, I'm going to survive, there's no next question. There's just what you know to do. Yeah. How How do you go about the process yourself? Like catching yourself and surviving or catching yourself thinking surviving and then shifting yourself to a plane of thriving. Sometimes I do prayer and meditation so I get out of the way my brain is thinking. It'll feel really tight in my chest. So I have physical reminders of you're off track, you're in survival, you're shutting down, you're in anxiety, you're in stress. So if my my body does that, if there's a retraction experience, I do whatever I can to really open my body up, open my arms, stand up, stomp around, go work out, listen to a meditation, do breath work. If none of that gets me out, then I think, who can hear me and reflect me without fixing me? And I have just a few friends that are really good at that. Because most people you call and say, I'm going through this thing. What are the first thing they want to do? Give you advice and fix it for you. Help you, save you, rescue you. That's not what I'm looking for. All I'm looking for is literally the person that becomes the mirror. I don't want your advice. I don't want you to think I'm broken and fix me. I just want you to reflect what you're hearing me say so I can hear it through you, not through my lens. So I have just a very few amount of people to do that, including my husband is one of them. And so I'll reach out. Sometimes I call a friend that's a girlfriend because I want more of the feminine experience. Sometimes I call a friend that is more of the masculine, feminine or, you know, male or female, doesn't matter, but someone that operates from the masculine or someone operates. If I need to get something done, I'll usually reach out to someone that operates in their masculine. And then I'll be very, very clear with my request. Hey, I'm calling you because I'm in a space. I feel really stuck, feeling a lot of emotions coming forward right now. I'm not calling you for advice. I'm calling you to reflect me. Are you able to do that? Yeah. And then they reflect it. And I usually, when someone reflects it, hear it differently than the way I'm hearing it. Because in my mind, it's so punitive. It's so, come on, come on, come on. Because that's what I heard growing up. And it's very like that in me. It's not always, I have to go to my inner counselor who's like, hi, hon. I love you so much. What do you need right now? I'm right here. Whatever you need. She's gentle and kind and nourishing. But the knee jerk inside my own head is usually not that. Yeah. And if I'm in the I'm in the upset or the sadness or the fear, I don't always go to her. Yeah. So it's either I get it out of my body physically, somatically, or I go to someone, reflect, hear it, and then process. Journal writing, walking, guided meditation, something like that. Yeah, it's, it's so good that you're clear about that in the way you communicate to the person. Because I think there's a lot of ego in helping people, helping people, right? That there's like, I even see it myself. You need me. Yeah, when someone calls me in distress, my ego will be like, ooh, let me see that side of me who like knows best. And it's useless, right? Because even if you give them a piece of logic that could satiate some suffering, at the same time, the ultimate goal of healing is to bring out the healer within that person, right? So it's like, how can they do that if you're yapping at them or telling them things? It's impossible. So it's good that you communicate that off the bat and that you can receive that. Because most people go to someone for help and they're just like, you should do this and all this stuff. And it doesn't help them see what's what's up in between. But I wanted to take a U-turn and go back to 
I'm so fascinated by your ability to to lead to leave here continually. Like, was that always the case? Or did that happen more so after your your near death experience? It was always the case, but I didn't know what I was doing. Okay. I can only know that now when I look back at times in my life where I didn't feel safe or I felt scared or I, I, I didn't know that's what I was doing. And it was actually years after the accident. It wasn't until I went and I got my master's where I was in an environment of people that didn't judge the process that was unconventional. Because for so long in my life, there was a right way and a wrong way. My father was really like, this is allowed and this is not. This mm. is right. This is wrong. You're either this or you're that. And so the experience inside of me was, I can't be me and I can't be different. When I went to my spiritual psychology, it was like all these people on very different journeys for very different reasons in this program feeling into what is their soul trying to communicate and do. And so one of the instructions that we had early on was every night before you go to bed, set a bedtime intention. And what that looked like was calling in your guides, calling in spirit, asking anything that in my unconscious state can be released, release it. So I don't have to suffer through it in my conscious state, trying to process and trying to heal and trying to do the inner child work and the journaling, all the stuff that we do in our human, like do it in my sleep state where I'm not fighting against any of it. There's no resistance. And give me access to what blessings, what information, what guides, what truth, what do I need to know that I can be served with so that when I wake in the morning, I have access to a lot more faculties and resources and acuity wow. to go and do what I'm here to do. So I've started, I started doing that process in 2007, mm -hmm. and I've never stopped. Every day. I do that process, whether it's a bedtime intention or whether it's even during my day, like I'll be driving, there'll be a lot of traffic and I'll just say, hey, spirit guides. And I'll kind of, you know, when you go kind of off rack your focus and you'll mm -hmm. kind of be in daydream mode, even yeah. if you're driving, I'll like go into this state of I'm here in the car, driving the car and aware of my surroundings, but I'm also being used in other ways. Like I, I have sensation that I'm in my client's experiences witnessing through their eyes what they're going through and reassuring them in the background in their psyche i have the experience of i get shown things that people need to know not to tell them but just to hold space for them i get taken into timelines of completely different eras and regions and times universal earth non-earth bound and basically what it is is i have trained or opened myself to be a vessel of um, energetic knowing and however energy is meant to flow through this vessel to be able to give it unconsciously telepathically or consciously I am open to that which is peaceful and serves for the highest good of all concerned only yeah. so that I don't open my portal up to psychic attacks or psychic warfare I'm only opening up to intuitive guidance that comes from peace and pleasure and compassion and truth and love. Mm -hmm. And in that space, I can heal things without ever talking to someone. I can heal things that are universal things that I just put my space yeah. and energy into. Yeah. What are the mantras and like what, are the, what can people communicate outwards to the universe or to their spirit guides or to anything to do that work? What, what's some of the communication we can cultivate to set that intention of, as you said, you know, healing in sleep or healing in those in those day trances. How can we communicate or set our intention with whatever is out, outside of here to do those things for us? What are the things we can say? 
I would say that it's personal to every individual. There's mm -hmm. not a wrong way. It's actually just doing it and being becoming a little bit more conscious of the practice. And basically what I think we're doing is we're saying, hey, human, trust something bigger than what you know. Yeah. Open up to trust something bigger than what you know. So you could just say that. Hey, human self, basic self, trust your authentic self has got this. And then you can make a request. Hey, universe, God, nature, whatever you believe in, you know, people for hundreds and centuries have been praying. It's kind of like a prayer. Yeah. But it's for some people, it's more of a spiritual or an energetic prayer. It's like anything that no longer serves me, please help release it in my unconscious state so there's no resistance to it releasing. If it's not serving me or serving the things I'm here to do, please take it away. I don't want to carry the burden of it anymore. And when I'm not carrying that burden, then I have more space to do the work that I'm here to do. And then please show me what I'm here, how I'm here to serve. Yeah. Guide me, show me, make it as simple as possible. How am I meant to serve? How am I meant to serve me so I can serve the greater good? How am I meant to serve others? Please show me. Yeah. And then what I do is I get more specific. Thank you so much for the blessing that you've afforded me. Thank you for this vision. Thank you for the ability to leave timeline. Hey, time warp in my favor so I have more time in my sleeping state. If I go to bed at two in the morning and I know I have something important the next day, hey, for every one hour of sleep that I get, give me 10 hours of actual deep body rest. Like I'm, at, I'm working with the universal flow of energy and not assuming that my construct of humanity is the truth. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start implementing all that. When, when you're in, in your dream, what are you actually seeing in your dreams mostly? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, imagine, um, you know, if you've never done any kind of medicine or any kind of, of plant medicine or any kind of hallucinogenic experiences, imagine when you're watching movies like The Matrix or Inception or movies where um, Doctor Strange, Marvel movies, where the world and the earth and the planets and the universes and the cosmos, it's, it's foreign, but somewhat familiar. I don't believe that movies and all that we are shown and the technology that makes movies capable isn't reality. Mm -hmm. I do believe in some cosmos, there's some form of all of this that's happening. Otherwise, I, I don't believe just creative expression could have thought that. Yeah. I think it's in consciousness. For sure. So because of that, there's an opportunity to actually lean into that consciousness and see things that people don't necessarily believe to be true. And I say, look with spiritual eyes, not human eyes. Listen with spiritual ears, not human ears. Feel with spiritual heart, not human heart only. Because it creates a massive, expansive, mirrored universes that you can travel through and work through. Yeah. And um, I think when we are less attached to how we know everything to be, we become way more... Um, aligned with the energy that has information and vision for us. But the imagery is all about what you've seen in movies or when you close your eyes and you've read really fantastical books, whatever imaginary worlds you see, that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Well, what's to wrap up here and I want to hear one more powerful story from you. If you give me one of the most like significant or powerful dreams you've had recently or sometime beyond the near-death experience that really showed you something? What was it? Um, so actually this week, 
there's been a lot of change happening in my life right now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people, close friends, family members, and clients that are going through a lot of transition and change. So two nights ago, I went to bed and I did my bedtime intention and I asked, can you release anything? And can you please show me cycles of action that are incomplete that I can support completion out of timeline, like in a different realm so I can just start closing cycles down because there's so much angst and there's so much fear of impending what's coming in society and with the conversations in politics, social experiences, economics, everything that's going on. There's an underlying pulse of stress Mm -hmm. and it's really impacting people in a very negative way. And when that happens, I feel a lot of it in my physical body and I don't want it to impact the ability to do the work that I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. So what I was getting shown is for me, everything comes in sound and images, imagery. Sometimes it's black and white. Sometimes it's color. More often it's color. And what was profound about this is most of the imagery that I saw was things that were in flight. So what I interpret that to mean is things that had wings, things that were moving and circling and spiraling. And so what I what I interpret that is, is everything needs to have the observer to be able to heal and see it without being in the experience in the judgment. So to complete cycles of action that are open, help yourself and help others pop out of their experience, see all the parts of it that that may be impacting them or their experience, and then have them go into it to, to adjust and solve. But don't try to solve from being in the experience. Try to work on it from being out of the experience. Yeah, it's probably it's so powerful. That's, I always try and pick up on lingering or mutual pieces of advice in all the podcasts. And that's one that always comes up is how important it is to zoom out when we're facing struggle in the lens of what is this actually leading me to? What's it inviting me to heal? And also the zooming out kind of helps you not get so stuck in the ego in a way of having that. And that, that perspective has helped me so much in like going through serious stuff. And the little stuff, it's, it's harder to do, but with like the serious stuff, it's really helped me just to zoom out and see, okay, this had to happen for this timeline and all this stuff. So, yeah, I, for sure. Thank you for saying that in such a beautiful mythological way. So Thank you. Thank you for all the wisdom bombs you dropped today and your amazingly powerful story. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all that. So thank, thank you. you. Where can people find you and find your work if they're uh, interested? They can find me on Instagram, Jan and Monica, J-A-N-A-N-D-M-O-N-I-K-A. It's spelled with a K, Monica, but spelled with a K. And janamonica.com. And at YouTube, Jan and Monica. Great. Yeah, we are we are everywhere in all places. <laughs> the ether, the world, everywhere. Great. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. 